This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Wooden Baseball Bats. Do you wish that backyard sports could give you more splinters? Try Wooden Baseball Bats today. There is a 50-50 chance that at some point in the next five years, the global annual temperature could spike past 1.5 degrees Celsius hotter than pre-industrial times, according to a new report from the World Meteorological Organization last week. As you may know, the goal that basically every country in the world has agreed upon is to keep global warming under a threshold of 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2100, which if we do the math, is a touch further out than the next five years. That may sound bleak, but what if I told you that a blip above 1.5 does not mean the world failed its climate goal? Good Wednesday morning, I'm Ethan Brown, and this is Tip of the Iceberg, where I will break down some environmental news and then answer a question from our listeners on the air. Submit questions via Patreon, email, or social media. Patron questions go to the front of the line, so sign up at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Most news coverage I read on this report actually broke down the nuance really well, and I'm sure much of that credit is due to the WMO's very clear press release. So I guess I'm not adding a brand new angle to this story. But in the climate world, 1.5 degrees Celsius is the most famous number. It's that number and 1877 e-bikes for kids. It's like cars for kids, but eco-friendly and more importantly, no jingle. And I do worry that because 1.5 degrees Celsius is emphasized so much, this report is just begging to be sensationalized, and I wanted to put one more thing into the world that I hope explains it in a more contextualized and scientifically accurate way. So back to that statistic. There is a 50-50 chance that in either 2023, 2024, 2025, 2026, or 2027, the global average temperature for one of those years will cross over the threshold of 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial times. Actually, it was a 48% chance if you read the report, but basically 50-50. Apparently, rounding up isn't just for the puffle-catching game on Club Penguin. But a blip above 1.5 in a random year is not an automatic failure, and here's why. If we put the weather from this week on a graph, there's going to be a ton of variation, unless you're in Seattle, inside the Natural History Museum, or inside the ecopod that Cliff from Cheers was going to live in. For the rest of us, we might have one day in the 90s, another day in the 70s, another in the 80s. It's going to bounce around. But it would be irrational to freak out over climate change on the 90-degree day and say it's not a big deal on the 70-degree day, right? Because climate change 
is not about the day-to-day timescale. In a similar vein, let's say we took the average temperature every month, and we plotted that on a graph, so a dot for January, a dot for February, etc. What are we going to see, besides a pointillism painting of a snake? Well, in the United States and much of the Northern Hemisphere, we're going to see a temperature rise that peaks in July and August. Should we be freaking out about climate change in the summer and shrugging it off in the winter? No, climate change also isn't on the month-to-month timescale. We have seasons, so again, we expect a good amount of natural variation. But this WMO report was talking year to year. So let's talk about that. At and around the equator, we have what we call trade winds, which are not winds that make addictive YouTube videos turning a paperclip into a house, but winds in the tropics that pretty reliably travel from east to west. If we go over to the Pacific Ocean, what that means is the warm water at the surface of the ocean is going to get blown westward. That means in the eastern Pacific, Colder water from deep in the ocean is going to flow up and make that part of the ocean colder, and in the western Pacific, the water is going to get warmer. Oops, actually, that may have just been me. Sorry, guys, recording in the ocean and haven't had a potty break. As for the eastern Pacific, that process of deep water coming to the surface is called upwelling, and I hope means we can also see some scary deep water fish on snorkel trips. Seriously, Google an angler fish. How could you not want to hang out with those? So we have this region of warm water, and that water is radiating heat into the atmosphere and impacting the global temperature. But what if the trade winds speed up? That's going to push more water further west, forcing the water deeper into the western Pacific. And then we'll see more upwelling of cold water in the eastern Pacific. With less warm water at the surface, there will be less heat radiating off the ocean, leading to a cooler global temperature. If Pacific temperatures drop a half degree Celsius below normal, that phenomenon is called La Nina, and it typically happens every few years, but there's a lot of variation. We're actually in line for a third year in a row of a La Nina event, which would be a lot better if La Nina was the music festival it sounds like. How about if the trade winds slow down or even reverse? That's right, the trade winds are playing Uno with the climate. Slowing or reversing will slow or stop the warm water from moving west. We won't see the upwelling of cold water, and as a result the Pacific Ocean will be radiating a lot more heat than normal. If Pacific temperatures rise a half degree Celsius above normal, we call it El Nino. That too happens every few years with a good amount of variation, but actually occurs more frequently than La Nina. Most recently, we had an El Nino event in 2018 to 2019, and we had a major El Nino event from 2014 to 2016. This shifting between El Niño and La Niña is called the El Niño-Southern Oscillation, or ENZO. Think of El Niño and La Niña as two horrible twins in their terrible twos. They're playing tug-of-war with the ocean and- Hey, put that down, goddammit! It is time for bed, you two! So what does that mean for average temperatures year to year? 
Similar to how we'd see weather fluctuations day-to-day, or seasonal fluctuations month-to-month, we're going to see Enzo fluctuations year-to-year. It's why 2016 actually remains the warmest year on record, in addition to being the last good year. And if you thought that was biting political satire, don't. I'm only talking about the timeline of Tom Brady's Super Bowls. For 2016 to be so hot, climate change obviously did the vast majority. For 2016 to be so hot, climate change obviously did the vast majority of the work, but El Nino put it over the top. 2019 is the second warmest year on record, which was also an El Nino year, and the last somewhat normal year in America. I mean, it was the next year that Tom Brady went to the Buccaneers and got yet another Super Bowl. Oh, and there was a virus or something, too? Seriously, though, not to spark any conspiracy theories, but I'm just pointing out that El Nino seems to pop up right before societal disaster strikes. No wonder that's the boy one. Now, Enzo doesn't account for everything. 2020 and 2021 are the third and sixth hottest years, respectively, and those were La Nina years. But Enzo does contribute enough variation where we can't take a specific year that was particularly hot and point 100% to climate change. It's a big part of it, but not the whole thing. So given that we're in a La Nina event now and haven't had an El Nino event since 2019, all that the 50-50 chance of a spike over 1.5 in the next five years is saying is that in the next five years, the World Meteorological Organization sees a 50-50 chance that an El Nino event puts us over the top. And I'll say it, I don't like that weather calculations are coming down to coin flip odds. That should be reserved for whether to get super salad, or whether or not I should give up on this podcast and take up the classical mandolin. What, you don't think I could pick up the mandolin that quickly? Every day I edge closer and closer. I mean, I've gotten heads 754 days in a row, but you never know. Like I said before, though, climate change has done the vast majority of the work to put us in 1.5 degree warming range. I do not want to discount that. But the variation from El Nino is why the odds of hitting 1.5 in a specific year are as high as they are. And in all likelihood, if it pans out that way, after an El Nino puts us above 1.5, a La Nina would take us back under. This is just the natural variation at the year-to-year scale. So we're actually not talking about the year-to-year scale when we talk about climate change. We're talking more in the 5 to 10, maybe up to 100-year scale. If you plot 5 or 10-year averages you basically cancel out El Nino and La Nina, and then you can very clearly see climate change. I'm sure you've seen that famous hockey stick graph. It's a bit frightening, and if you haven't, it's like a hockey stick in the form of a graph. You probably know what that looks like unless you play for the Arizona Coyotes. But what worries me a little bit, even though the press coverage on this WMO report was very good, is that if we do see a year soon that blips over 1.5, then people might give up hope. They might think we failed at our international target. When in reality, that wouldn't be fair to say. 
Again, climate change is knocking on that door. It is why we are even having this conversation. But the 1.5 goal is not in reference to a temperature from a single year, but rather a 5-year or 10-year average, much like your career goals once you hit your early 20s and life starts to blend together and you're not taking new classes and meeting new friends each year, and damn it, I miss college. But with regard to the 1.5 threshold, we likely wouldn't see a 5-year average that high for a few decades if ever. The WMO found that there is a 10% chance the next five years average over 1.5, which is pretty low odds. And on the flip side, if we actually hit the IPCC report's targets of flattening the carbon emissions curve in 2025, cutting emissions by 43% by the early 2030s, and reaching carbon neutral by the early 2050s, then we have a good shot at avoiding 1.5 altogether. Again, not on the year-to-year scale, but on the 5-10-year scale. The IPCC found those targets are more than doable and have a host of economic, social, and health benefits to boot. The other possibility to remain cognizant of, which I would not be surprised to see play out, is if the 5-year averages did exceed 1.5 for some time, but fell back under by the time 2100 rolls around. Remember, once the world hits carbon neutral, we can keep going. We can become carbon negative and try to start cooling things off and move back in the direction of a natural climate. Now, we don't want to bank on that. It's less expensive and less complicated to cut emissions now as fast as we can. And if you want to know why, check out our episodes on carbon capture and solar geoengineering. But if we did have a few decades of 1.7 or 1.8 and then we maneuvered things back down, it's not ideal. None of this is ideal. Heck, in an ideal world, this podcast would just be me and my mandolin. But it would still achieve the international target of under 1.5 by 2100. This leads into my main takeaway, though, which is that as interesting as it is to keep an eye on global temperatures, 1.5 is not the number that matters most. The number that matters most, the number we have almost complete control over, is 59 billion tons of global annual greenhouse gas emissions. 59 billion tons per year. We get that to zero, or as close to it as we can, and the global temperature works itself out. So I'm really happy this WMO report seems to have been presented properly to the public, but I also don't want to lose sight of what really matters. As TikTok and denim jeans have proven, we can't stress too much about year-to-year trends. We see climate change is happening, we can project that we're currently on track to worsen it in the coming decades, and we know several ways in which we can cut greenhouse gas emissions in a swift, just, and economical way to get climate change under control. So let's pick up the pace on that, and not let a random temperature blip break our spirits. Looking to be the envy of your little league team? Then wooden baseball bats are for you. Why use an aluminum bat that'll absorb sunlight and burn your little hands when you can endanger white ash forests and contribute to beetle infestations, all while barely hitting a single? Neato! 
wooden baseball bat. Find it in the basement next to Dad's torn-up catcher's mitt. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to Tip of the Iceberg. It's time for Ask Me Anything, where our listeners get a chance to ask me any environmental questions they may have. Submit questions on our Patreon, email, or social media. Questions from patrons go to the front of the line, so be sure to sign up today at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. We've got a slightly atypical Ask Me Anything today. Most of the questions I've received to date haven't been about pressing news. By the way, if you send questions about the news, I always try to answer them sooner, so pro tip there to get on the show. But I was actually casually asked a question from one of our producers, Shannon Damiano, and I've seen a lot of people asking this question online. I think it's a really good and important question, so I wanted to give my two cents on it. I'm paraphrasing a little, but Shannon asked, should we be concerned about this Supreme Court making decisions on climate? If we want to use a really narrow focus here and say, is this court likelier to issue decisions or even overturn precedents that the majority of climate activists would not be happy with, then yes, I think climate activists have made that opinion known. But for climate change specifically, I actually don't think the stakes are as high as they're being made out to be, and let me explain why. The main case climate people seem to be concerned about is West Virginia v. Environmental Protection Agency, which is a pending case before the Supreme Court, with a decision likely to come in the next month or so. To give some context... You might remember our policy development episode, where we talked about the 2007 case called Massachusetts v. EPA. That case argued that the Clean Air Act of 1963, which gives the EPA authority to regulate emissions of air pollutants, extends to greenhouse gases. In other words, the EPA had a mandate to cut greenhouse gas emissions. They'd be liable if they didn't. The case was decided in favor of Massachusetts, leading the EPA to propose the Clean Power Plan in 2014, then repeal that and announce the Affordable Clean Energy Rule in 2018. But by whatever means necessary, it was the EPA's job, as written in law by the Clean Air Act, to get this done. A bunch of legal mumbo-jumbo later that we won't get into, and we now have West Virginia v. EPA, which is essentially arguing that the EPA now has too much power in regulating greenhouse gas emissions, and the Clean Air Act did not grant this much authority. Deciding in favor of West Virginia would essentially buck the precedent for Massachusetts v. EPA and hamper the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gases. Understandably, climate people are very concerned about that possibility, as greenhouse gases are what cause climate change. But here's my feeling. If we set aside the urgency of climate change for just two seconds, I promise I'll come right back to it. But just from the perspective of the Clean Air Act, 
It was more about air pollutants causing health issues, such as particulate matter, carbon monoxide, lead, sulfur dioxide, that sort of thing. Obviously, climate change causes health issues too, but not directly from breathing in carbon dioxide. So I'm not enough of a legal expert to know the right decision here, obviously, but purely legally. You can see that this is a valid debate, right? The Supreme Court's job here isn't to solve climate change, it's to decide what the language of the Clean Air Act instructs the EPA to do. And I don't think that specific question has a clear answer. Back to climate change, though, which I know we're a lot more concerned about than the legal intricacies. Do you really think that EPA slamming down regulations across every industry in America under the guise of a law from 1963 is the way we're going to tackle climate change? Think about that for a minute. It's a way. But I've talked to you all for over a hundred episodes and counting about how nuanced climate change is, how there are so many options for solutions that can help the economy, help social injustices, actually make our lives better rather than being a sacrifice. The Supreme Court doesn't have the power to capture that. Unless it's granted to them in the future, the EPA doesn't have the power to capture that. But Congress does. That's where laws are made. That's where they can dig into the nuance of every one of these issues, hash it out, agree on a policy. And that process has to earn the buy-in of everyone. I know Congress is gridlocked, but it has to. Cutting carbon emissions and combating climate change is going to take decades. And since World War II, the longest stint that one political party has held the presidency, House, and Senate was eight years, from 1961 to 1969. Given that climate change increasingly affects everyone, given that climate solutions are so exciting and provide benefits for everything we care about, I think there's so much room for common ground, even among divided politicians, and I think it's much easier to be adults and find that common ground than it is to expect your party is going to ram some climate policy through that the other party hates, then hold on to power for several decades in order to avoid it getting rolled back. Certainly, a bipartisan policy based in common ground is more stable than expecting the EPA to single-handedly mitigate climate change when they have much more limited power and change hands every time there's a new president. Could the Democrats and Republicans come together and pass a bunch of bipartisan laws around climate change just to have the Supreme Court step in and strike them down? In theory, sure, but it's hard to see that happening. And that's why I think specifically on climate change, worrying too much about the Supreme Court is a bit misdirected. For other issues, especially surrounding our constitutional rights and freedoms, absolutely, the Supreme Court is really important, don't get me wrong. And there are other cases that could be concerning from an environmental perspective too. But West Virginia v. EPA seems to be the case all the climate world is talking about. And as for that one, it's very significant, but I don't think the stakes are quite as high as they're being made out to be. 
Regardless of the decision, Congress really ought to make new laws with broad support specifically designed to address climate change, and not expect the EPA to do all the work based on an unclear mandate from 1963. I know cooperation in Congress sounds like a fantasy, but that seems a lot more realistic to me than the alternative. Thanks so much for the question, Shannon, and thanks to all of you who listened to Tip of the Iceberg. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and your questions move to the front of the line for Tip of the Iceberg. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET Group. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you on Friday for a deep dive on cannabis.